In case you missed the announcement, the Optimize Yourself podcast is currently on summer hiatus, but that does not mean that we plan to leave you high and dry without engaging conversations that educate, motivate, and inspire you. We're going to be back this fall with some significant changes and improvements to the show. But in the meantime, this week, I'd like to share an interview that I did with Javier Mercedes for his show, Passion in Progress, where Javier inspires his listeners to get out and pursue their passions by interviewing creators about their successes, their failures, and the wisdom gained from putting in the work, as he puts it. I'm really excited about sharing this conversation specifically because Javier and I go deep about the concept of finding and defining your deeper why so that you can really have a sense of purpose and direction with both your work and your life. If you want to follow Javier and all of the work that he's doing in addition to this podcast interview, just go to JavierMercedes.com and the spelling is going to be in the show notes for this episode. And now, without further ado, my passion in progress interview with Javier Mercedes. On this week's episode of Passion in Progress, Zach Arnold. This interview takes place in LA where all those big budget films and TV shows are filmed. And Zach has a part in that production. He's a big time video editor. He started his career young, cutting movie trailers. Then he moved on to creating his own documentary. And now he does long form TV dramas. And I'm not talking about your run in the mill shows. Zach has edited episodes for some of the biggest dramas there are. I'm talking about Glee, Empire, and Burn Notice. And speaking of Burn Notice, have you ever experienced burnout? as a creative. Well, Zach's got you covered. He has a podcast called Optimize Yourself, where it talks about issues just like that, dealing with creative burnout and thriving, not only in your work environment, but in life in general. I highly recommend you checking out his podcast and you'll see why after listening to this episode. Zach has some of the best life hack, efficiency, wisdom nuggets around. And speaking of recommending podcasts, this podcast is supported through your reviews. I am fueled by seeing those reviews on iTunes. Today's review comes from M. Javier has great energy. I've listened to every single episode. Each one is inspiring in different ways. Give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. Keep up the awesome hobby. Thank you, M. It's reviews like that that keep this podcast going and support me in this passion and progress. Please, if you enjoy the podcast and get something out of this episode, share it with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, tweet it out, text it to your buddies. Any bit helps. Thank you again for your support. And here we go. Zach Arnold, the guy is an efficiency wisdom wizard. That's right. I said it. Let's go. What is up, Mercedes Nation? Javier Mercedes here for yet again another Passion in Progress podcast. And boy, oh boy, am I so excited for today. And I want to make this intro as brief as possible because the man in front of me has so much to say. And I just want to be a student of whatever he's going to say and just take in everything. Because after I listened to your podcast, Optimize Yourself, I was like, Whoa! Like mind blown, <laughs> uh, and uh, may or may not have just like binged and listened to as many as I could get my ears around. I anticipate this being an amazing podcast. How's it going today, Zach Arnold? I'm great, thank you. Um, it was I'm just so overwhelmed by the uh, by the response, and uh, like so so you're the listener that listens to all my shows. I'm very excited about that. Um, I will do my best. To, uh, to give you all the, the content that you desire and uh, live up to the introduction, but I'm just a mere mortal. So um, I'll share what I can, but I never consider myself an expert. I consider myself somebody that's constantly on the journey to learn more and just kind of get 1% better at everything I do every single day. So 
I think of myself as if I were going through the jungle of all the information and all the goals and all the things that people want to achieve. I happen to be the guy in the front with the machete, but everybody else is like right there, right behind me. So I'm not on a pedestal with everybody below me. I'm just a little bit further ahead going through all the crap. So uh, not everybody has to. Uh, <laughs> that's a great analogy. I'm just going to take this straight from your IMDb uh, just to give a little introduction of who you are and then just dive in a little bit deeper on your history as a video editor. So Zach Arnold is an award-winning filmmaker and television editor, uh, documentary director, father of two, as well as a creator of Optimize Yourself where he helps ambitious creative professionals learn how to more effectively manage their time, energy, and attention so they can maximize their focus and creativity and minimize depression and burnout. I don't know if I did that as good as your intros to your podcast, but there's the spiel. That pretty much covers it. <laughs> In your IMDb, it's, uh, it's spectacular. It's things like Burn Notice, Empire. I saw you did an episode of Glee in there and uh, so on and so forth. Can you tell the listeners a little brief background of how you got into video editing and just the different types, the scale of the projects that you work on. Yes, uh, it's funny that you bring up the the tail end of my IMDb resume because so many people look at it, especially the earlier parts, and they will say, wow, this is kind of a scattershot mess and I have no idea how you got where you are today. So can you explain your story? My editing story actually begins when I was about nine years old. So I was in the movies. My brother, who was actually 13 years older than me, he was obsessed with movies and still is to this day. And he showed up with a VHS camcorder. So mo most of your audience is going to have to like Google what VHS <laughs> is, but just watch Saved by the Bell from the 80s. You have Zach Morris with the giant phone and the giant camera on his shoulder. So my brother brought one of those home and he said, let's shoot a movie around the house. I'm like, that sounds cool. So we basically shot this seven to 10 minute film of us running around the house, shooting each other with Nintendo guns. Love it. And it took about 12 hours. And at the end of the day, I was like, my God, that sucked. We <laughs> were running around all day long. It was hot. It was sweaty. I didn't really understand the process. And then he showed it to me and I'm like, that's all we have. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. <laughs> but then two weeks later, he showed up and he showed me what we had done, all edited together. And he scored it with the music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I swear it was like I had seen porn for the first time. And I said, <laughs> that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You have to explain to me how you did that. And he showed me how he took a cassette deck and he ran the audio from that into a VHS player. And then he took a second VHS player and ran the video feed and he would play and record. And that was pretty much where my editing journey started at nine years old. And I did that for years. You were hooked. I was hooked from the time I was nine, pretty much until college. I was doing VHS to VHS linear editing. Mm -hmm. And then in college, I discovered the Abbott. And it was kind of that second moment of my life of mine completely blown mm -hmm. where I didn't have to pop in tapes. And I could just move stuff around without constantly having to re-edit it tape to tape. And that's where I really immersed myself in the world of how editing works, learning the software, but also learning storytelling. Um, and then from there, when I came out to Los Angeles, I was an assistant editor at a small trailer production company for five months. And I basically talked myself into an editing job five months out of graduation and I've been an editor ever since. So unlike most, I've never actually been an assistant other than my first few months in the business. I'm assuming that's not normal. 
No, that is very, very abnormal. I have about four parts of my story, like all the major turning points that when I talk about them, people say, I've never heard of anything like that in my life. And I have four of those moments. <sighs> so the first one is that to become an assistant editor in Los Angeles at this company in Santa Monica, I had sent them a resume and it's the only resume that I sent out. Maybe I had sent out one more, but it was like one or two resumes the Wednesday before my graduation ceremony. For, so graduating from college and I went to college in Michigan. So I wasn't even in, in the state. It wasn't even in the right part of the country. However, and this is a little pro tip for anybody that's trying to get into the business, make sure your address is local. So I lied about my address. That is so true. Oh my gosh, that's so true. So I lied about my home address and I, it, it was a real address. It was a friend of mine that had moved out here, but I used his address. And they thought I was local. So they said, hey, can you come in for an interview on Monday? And I was like, uh, sure, no problem. This was the night before my graduation ceremony. So I ran to my parents and I said, so good news. Um, I have to fly to Los Angeles on Sunday because I have a job interview on Monday. And they're like, but we're having dinner with your family and your aunts and your uncles and your cousins on Saturday night. And I'm like, oh, I'll be there, but I need to fly out Sunday morning. So I flew to Los Angeles on Sunday, the day after my ceremony where I walked down the aisle and all that, had my interview on Monday, was in LA for four or five days, driving around the city, getting to know it. I hadn't been here as an adult. I'd been here as a tourist when I was like seven with my family. So I flew back, I believe it was maybe on Friday. I get the call Friday afternoon, right after I landed and got home saying, loved your interview. We would love to have you start on Monday if you're available. And I was like- <laughs> Well, see, here's oh, the thing. Oh, man. I, I, yes, I want the job. I'll totally take it. But to be perfectly honest, I'm still in the process of moving. And if I could have one extra week just to finish everything up so I can be totally focused on the job, that would be ideal. And they said, oh, no problem at all. We're hiring two assistants. We'll just have him start on Monday. And then he can kind of get things started and you can come the following Monday. So I said, great. So I hung up the phone and I called my parents and I said, I have to move to Los Angeles this weekend. And they're like, that's fantastic. How are you going to do that? And I had no idea. So I pretty much gave away everything that I owned that didn't fit in my car. And that Wednesday, I got in my car with any everything that owned that fit into a Pontiac Sunfire. Mm -hmm. I drove across the country in two and a half days, got there Saturday night, started my job in Santa Monica on Monday morning. And I've been here ever since. It was about 16 years ago. So crazy. So and oh, that, that's so that's awesome. That's the first turning point where people say, oh my God, that never happens. I'm like, you're right, that never happens. I was planning on spending six months to a year just saving money, being unemployed, learning the business. And all of a sudden I have a full-time job with health benefits eight days after I graduated from college. So that's where it started. Two years after being a trailer editor, I decided I didn't want to be a trailer editor for the rest of my life. I said, this is not really what I want to do. I love long form storytelling. And one of my favorite things to edit is trailers, but version one. So version one is my favorite thing to edit. Versions two through 35 are just a soul-sucking nightmare to work on. And I said, I don't want to work in the trailer business because 95% of what I do is not version one. It's versions two through 150, right? So I decided I want to edit long form features. And everybody said, well, that just doesn't happen. You're a trailer editor and like you're in a box and you, know, you really have to start all over. And I'm like, no, I'll figure it out. So I found my first feature opportunity. I completely jumped ship at 25 years old, turned down really, really good paying trailer work for practically no paying work on this low budget feature, which was paying me less than when I was an assistant at this company. Yeah. And 
now looking back 10, 15 years later, everybody that was in the position, like at the same trailer companies, they're saying, man, I'm still stuck here as a trailer editor. And I really wish I jumped ship like you did. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first feature film that I actually edited ended up getting purchased by Fox Searchlight for just under $5 million. So that was, just under, just under five million dollars, <laughs> and I, I didn't get that money. But uh, yeah, you know. I was gonna say even back then, that's probably a lot of that's a lot of money. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was kind of my turn into long form. But then to get from that film to other fully paying feature films was several years of balancing cutting trailers to pay the bills, and then cutting lower no budget feature films to build up my resume. So I yeah. went probably another seven or eight years just amassing long form credits. And then just as I was kind of ready to hit the cusp of working on bigger budget features and, you know, the Fox Searchlight type movies and getting into the union, that's when the business really started to change. That's when it really became either there are movies available that their total production budget is $100,000 or $100 million. The middle films really started to disappear. And I said, if I want to do this for a living, I'm probably going to have to move to television. And creatively, what I love working on is really deep introspective character dramas. We don't have a lot of those in the feature film world anymore. So I decided, you know what? I don't want to do features. I really want to work in television. So everybody said, well, you can't transition from feature films to television. Nobody does that. You're going to get pigeonholed. And I said, well, (laughs) let me see what I can do about that. So I just decided I wanted to work in television. And I ended up um, finding this project on Craigslist of all places that was a super low budget web series. And at the time it was just two guys and two credit cards that had shot a couple of pilot episodes for this web series. And when I say web series, we're talking like 10 to 15 minutes an episode. Um, And they came to me with the footage and said, we really believe in this. I looked at it and I said, you guys have something here. I really saw a calling card. So I put together a trailer along with a friend of mine that helped with the trailer. And then I cut the two pilot episodes. That series ended up getting picked up by Sony and Sony decided that they wanted to make it to be like their, their big show for their crackle platform. So I worked on that project for, I don't know, maybe six months and it was paying. It didn't pay a lot. It actually ended up costing me money because I was providing a lot of facility services and and my own assistant that I was paying. So it it ended up costing me money to work on it. It wasn't even something I was like in the the black working on. Um, But stylistically, it was a great calling card. And I said, you know, this looks a lot like the show that I'm hearing about called Burn Notice. So, and other people were telling me that as well. So I started watching Burn Notice and I was like, huh, this is a pretty cool show. And I feel like I could actually cut this. I feel like I have the chops based on my experience. So what I did from that point is I started to Facebook stalk every single person that worked on Burn Notice. And I private messaged them the trailer for this web series. It was called The Bannon Way. And it hadn't even come out yet, but I sent them the trailer, which I also cut. And I said, listen, your show has been a huge inspiration to me. I love the way that you cut it. I'm really into television. I haven't worked in TV before. I'd love to learn more. By the way, here's the trailer for my project. Would love any feedback that you have. Nobody responded except one guy, which is one of the editors on the show. And he said, I'm kind of embarrassed, but this show looks even better than ours. I need to learn. I need to understand more about what this is. I'd love to have lunch with you. I have lunch with a guy. We totally hit it off just as people. Like we're, yeah. we, we were just really friendly. Um, and about a month later, he came back to me and he said, listen, I'm going to be editing a pilot for Matt Nix, who's the creator of Burnt Notice. And we're going to need somebody to cover one episode of season four. Here's the deal. Honest truth. You're not going to get it. 
but I want to get you the interview. There are going to be plenty of people there that have worked on shows like 24 and Heroes and like all these like big top-notch network shows. And you haven't even worked in TV, but you deserve an interview and you at least get it. You should get a chance to meet these guys because I think the work you've done is fantastic. So I simply said, well, I'm not just going to go in there because I feel the interview is an opportunity. I'm getting this job. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this job. So I watched the first three seasons of the show twice in a week. So if you do the math, that's, I think it was about 48 to 50 episodes of television twice. Morning, noon, and night, I just ingested. It was like a mental digitization process of watching Burn Notice. And I went into the interview and I convinced the executive producer that nobody knows the show better than I do. I probably know the editorial style better than your editors do. Like you can hire whoever you want that has all the experience in the world that's worked on big shows. They're not going to understand your show as well as I do. And that was enough to convince them to go to the studio and the network and get me forwards for my one episode shot. I did my one episode and they saw that I knew the show and decided that they were just going to keep me on staff and 25 episodes and four seasons later, oh. that was burn notice. So oh, that's awesome, man. That's so cool. That's like, uh, I did uh, an interview with the guy that is the sound designer for Squidbillies. And he, he had a similar story where he was just, he had a one-off with one of like, they were working on a completely different show. It was like a commercial for something. And then he just, he, he really put effort into knowing everything about what they were doing at, at Adult Swim saw the opportunity and they were like, they were just like about to leave in the hallway and he came up and he was like, I haven't done any of this before. I, to be honest, I don't even know how to mix in tape, but I want to do this and so on and so forth. That was, uh, but man, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. No, what I always tell people is number one, you're never going to replicate my story. Like mm -hmm. each one of those individual major turning points is very, very unique, mm -hmm. but I don't like to share my story and discourage people to say, oh, that's amazing, but that's never going to happen to me. Right. Yeah. It's all about the takeaways. That's what I try to do in my podcast is what's the takeaway? What are the action steps that anybody can follow? And what I try to teach from my story is that it's the same theme at every single step. And the theme is always whatever the opportunity, I'm getting the most out of it. So, so many people will go into working on a low budget project, for example, and they'll think, oh, well, I really feel like I'm better than this. And I should be working on stuff where I get paid more and it's a bigger budget. So I'm going to show up, but I, this isn't really the right fit for me. I've, I'm, I, I think I'm better than stuff that's like this. But that attitude is pervasive through everything they do, which is why they most likely don't move up. So it doesn't matter what the project is. I'm giving it every single thing that I have. And that just becomes a habitual mindset. So it didn't matter if I was editing local corporate videos for grocery stores in my town of 400 people when I was in high school. It didn't matter, matter if I was editing somebody's wedding video in college on the side to make a hundred bucks. Didn't matter if I was putting on tape labels when I was an assistant editor. Didn't matter if I was cutting really, really low budget theatrical independent trailers or working on feature films where I got paid nothing. It was always the same mentality. How can I get the best out of the opportunity that I'm given? And it was that habitual mindset over the course of a decade that got me to the point where I could walk in and, you know, get not only get the job on burn notice, but keep it. That reminds me of an, uh, in one of your episodes, I believe you talk about implementing systems for, for habit change. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, so systems is a big buzzword for me. I don't know if you're uh, <laughs> old enough to remember Pee-wee's Playhouse, but Pee-wee's Playhouse has the word of the day where when somebody says it, the whole playhouse goes crazy and screams. And when I hear the word systems, I hear bells and whistles and like, ooh, <laughs> systems. Um, so yeah, 
to, to create a habit, you basically just need to have three pieces. And then there's a fourth component as well. And I can go deeper into this when you talk about specific habits, but whatever the habit is, it starts with a trigger, right? So let's say that it's a super, super simple habit of, you know, it's something that everybody does, brush your teeth in the morning, right? So the trigger is either an alarm, the trigger could be it's five minutes after you wake up and get a glass of water, whatever it is. So you have a trigger, then you have a routine, which is brushing your teeth. The reward is, oh, my mouth just doesn't taste like scum right now. So that's a reward, right? Another example would be you see a donut in the break room. The trigger is I see the donut. The routine is I shove the donut in my face. The reward is I feel amazing. And it tastes so good. And it tastes so good. But then something else happens, which is called the craving. So you do that over and over and over. So all you have to do is look at a donut and bam, the craving is there because you're fulfilling that routine, right? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to having a habitual mindset of I want to look at this opportunity and get the most out of it, that's not as simple as, well, I need to set an alarm. But the trigger can be, Whenever I am presented an opportunity, the routine is I'm going to give it every single thing that I have. And the reward is that I walk away from that opportunity thinking, no matter how this works out, I at least am not going to regret the fact that I left something on the table. Whether it was, well, I could have put a few more hours into cutting that scene, or if it's exercise, you know what, I, I didn't really push hard enough to the gym, whatever it is. I'm always thinking to myself, the only thing I can truly control is the version of myself that shows up and the amount of effort that I put into it. And I want to walk away knowing that I didn't leave anything. So an example would be um, like right now I'm training for American Ninja Warrior. So that's, that's my, that's my quote unquote hobby, right? That's, that's (laughs) what I, I generally set two very large goals every year. One is a personal goal. One is a professional goal. So my personal goal, which very much intersects with my professional goals with my website as well, is that I want to get on the show American Ninja Warrior. So one of the things that you could say fell into my lap, but I'm a big believer that when you put things out into the world, the crazy connect. things yeah, happen. So a couple of months ago, I was uh, just you know connecting with a random person and another ramp, random person. And what essentially fell into my lap is I'm now training with Tony Horton, the creator of P90X in his, ba- <laughs> in his backyard every Sunday morning. No way. Yes, because no way. he has his own ninja obstacle course in his backyard. So I'm now training with him in person awesome. and it's like the worst, hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it's with a lot of guys that have been doing this kind of stuff for years. So I'm usually by far the weakest and the worst one that's there. Like it's a very, very humbling experience. Mm-hmm. But what he always says is he's like, man, there's nobody here that's working harder than you. Cause I know if I show up and I leave at the end of the day and I think, you know what? I probably could have pushed harder than I failed. But if I show up and I have the lowest number of reps and I can't do anything, but I'm like, I left it all in his backyard and I've got nothing left, to me, that's success. So that's the way that I look at everything. And the more you do that, the more you create this filter in your mind that it just becomes habitual. It's really cool, by the way, that you get to do that. It's like, how about that for a personal trainer? Geez, that reminds me of the concept of removing the word problem from your vocabulary. Uh, could you give some examples of that? Because like when I heard that on the... Um, on I, I think you bring it up on, uh, on numerous podcasts, yeah, it's, actually. It's definitely a recurring theme. Uh, sure. But uh, when I heard that, I was like, all right, going to try. I'm, ju- I'm just going to do that. And if I ever find myself saying that, I'll switch the mindset there. Can you explain yeah, that? Yeah. And there, there's a couple of different ways to look at this um, that can be helpful to people. But 
I wrote in an article fairly early on in the, the days when I transitioned to optimize yourself. I had said, you're never going to believe me when I tell you this, but I have no problems in my life. Yeah, that's had, I remember Had I that. said it to a, a live audience or whatever, it would have been like, oh, whatever. Like, obviously, I'm writing it or I'm podcasting it, so there is no immediate response. But I can imagine what the response is. So the way that I follow that up is that I don't have problems. I have challenges and I have obstacles. And it's all about mindset. It doesn't mean that I don't have all kinds of crap in my life that I like to get rid of that's just noise or whatever it is. But it's all about your mindset looking at it. When I have a problem, problems are things that I make excuses for or things that I can say, oh God, this is so annoying, right? Just imagine you're having a conversation with somebody and you said, explain to me all the problems in your life. That's not gonna be a positive conversation, right? But now imagine, this is a networking tip, by the way. So this is kind of like, a, you know, you wanna talk about a, a hack. This is a, a networking hack that'll get deeper into this philosophy. So if you say to somebody in a networking context, so what are all the problems that are in your life right now? They're thinking, I don't wanna talk about my problems. Like I've got this going on and I can't find this job, whatever. But now imagine if I reframed it and said, I'd love to learn more about the challenges that you're facing right now and the obstacles you're having trouble overcoming. All of a sudden people start to feel empowered. Like, yeah, I've got all this stuff. But in their mind, they're thinking, yeah, but this, this is all part of the struggle. And when I get over it, I'm gonna feel like I've learned something and I've grown. So I look at everything in my life as a challenge or an obstacle. It's like, all right, so this happened and this sucks, but how do I learn from it? Like this, this is something that I learned from my father at a very early age, where whenever something bad would happen, and it, you know, I've been through enough things just in general in my life that I've had some, not horrible things, but some, some pretty crappy stuff has happened. And he'll say, well, I'm really sorry you're going through it. I'm really sorry that you're going through with that right now, but sure is a valuable learning experience, isn't it? <laughs> like that's just been the theme of my whole life. So that's just become this ingrained mindset, this filter that I see the world through where when something comes along that's really difficult, I think this is challenging. This is very, very hard. But when I get to the other side, that just becomes something else on my resume that I've conquered and I've overcome. So much so that I now embrace and actually bring as many obstacles in my life as humanly possible. American Ninja Warrior being the most literal metaphor for I want to run and jump on obstacles. And frankly, if I get on the show, it's maybe going to be three to five minutes of my life where I'm swinging across beams and doing rock climbing stuff and climbing up walls. Like it's not about that. It's about all of the challenges and obstacles that I face to train to get to that point. And in addition to things like Ninja Warrior, I also do Spartan races. I do Tough Mudders because what happens is you put yourself in positions where you're faced with nothing but challenges and obstacles for hours at a time, going 10 to 12 miles, climbing under barbed wire and you know, climbing over walls, military style obstacles. And you start to develop something that's called obstacle immunity. So I love you, how deep this goes. This you is just, awesome. <laughs> you, get you get really used to being in positions of discomfort and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm getting better at dealing with discomfort. So give me more discomfort, bring on more and bring on more. So an example would be that on a Saturday afternoon, if I've just run 12 miles in the mountains and I've been sprayed in the face with a fire hose, and I've been dunked in ice water, continually doing all these things for four hours. When I go to work on Monday and something doesn't export, I'm like, whatever, dude. <laughs> you have no idea what my weekend looked like. This is a piece of cake. But people that have very small um, resiliency to stress, they can be in the world of film editing or you know, creating content or shooting or whatever it is, and they get so riled up and stressed out about all these little things. 
simply because they just haven't developed obstacle immunity. So I embrace really, really challenging situations so I can therefore have a much stronger response to to stress and still remain calm. Oh, man. Um, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of learning experiences and things of that nature, I think this really ties into Go Far, the documentary that you did. Can you talk about your perspective on just life in general after doing something like that? And obviously talk about what the documentary is. Uh, so the documentary is called Go Far, the Christopher Rush story. And it is about the first quadriplegic with muscular dystrophy to become a licensed scuba diver. Um, he was also uh, the former poster child for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. For much of your audience, if they're younger than I am, which I'm guessing they are, they may not know who Jerry Lewis is, but if they do know, do know who Jerry Lewis is, they'll remember the Labor Day telethons, raising money for muscular dystrophy. He was the poster child. He would be the one on TV sitting with Jerry Lewis, traveling the country, trying to raise money. Um, so that's a small picture of uh, what he did. Um, his parents were told when he was seven months old that your son will be nothing more than a dish rag and he will be dead by two. So that was the prognosis that he was given. And he did end up living until 30 years old. And I knew Chris as a friend of mine at the University of Michigan. He was in law school at the time taking a sabbatical and he took a graduate, not it was a, a high undergraduate level film production course. And he was rolled in a class the first day and everybody kind of looked around and said, uh, what is this guy doing in a film production course? Like we run around with light boxes and cameras. Like this is all, this is very physical class. And there started to be whispers of people saying, God, I hope he doesn't get stuck in our group. Mm -hmm. God, what a pain that would be, right? Like how are we going to deal with, you know, some guy in a wheelchair? And remember he's quadriplegic. It's not somebody rolling themselves in there. He has no use use of his limbs whatsoever. So this kind of made me angry. And I approached him after class and I said, listen, I don't know anything about your disability. I'm not very familiar with what it's like to work with somebody with a disability, but come into my class, come into my group, and we'll figure it out as we go. That one moment, that one decision has created this alternate path for my life that has changed everything about the way that I live my life and what I do. Had I not done that, if you're thinking of like Doc McFly's alternate lines of reality from Back to the Future 2, I might be in Biff Tannen land right now. But right now, my life is completely driven by that one decision to invite him into my group. So we were friends for several years in college. We did some films. He became a very good friend of mine. Um, He quote unquote stood up in my wedding. Obviously, he didn't stand up, but he was, you know, a part of my wedding. He was one of my groomsmen. Um, And my wedding is actually the last time that I saw him because he passed away a couple of months later. And I'm sitting in the church during his funeral and people started talking about all the things he had accomplished in his life. Most of which I knew nothing about because he was just a guy with a good sense of humor that was hardworking. So that's when I learned about the scuba diving. And that's when I learned about being a poster child with Jerry Lewis and all these other things he had accomplished. And somebody else stood up and started talking about this motivational program that he had just started developing called Go Far which is a five-step acronym that stood for goals, obstacles, focus, act, and review. And I swear at that moment, a lightning bolt struck me right in the head. And I said, oh my God, this is a film. The story can't end in this church this day. And I kind of sat there and I was like, oh, so I'm going to be the one to do this. (laughs) Okay. And that was the beginning of that journey. And it took about eight years from that moment to the point where I had finished the film, I'd done the festival circuit, it's now available 
on Apple and Amazon and Google Play and Roku and Xbox. Like anywhere digitally that you can see a film minus Netflix, you can pretty much get a copy of it and rent it for like 99 cents. Um, But I took that story and that framework and have applied it to all the work that I'm doing in Optimize Yourself and in my program as well. So that's kind of the genesis of where GoFar and where the documentary came from. So cool. Uh, I, I, I think a through line through listening to your podcast and um, what you talk about is as opposed to asking yourself what and how in any situation, it's more about the why. Can you explain that and kind of relate it? Because like the, when I heard it the first time, I believe it was via Rockstar Editors versus um, Good Editors. But I think you bring it up in some way, shape or form throughout most of your podcasts asking why you're, what's the purpose of something? Can you talk about that? Yeah, why is a huge theme in all the work that I do and has been for years. Um, it originally was something that was more intuitive that I didn't really seem to understand. Like I just, I, when I was an editor, even just editing stuff when I was younger, it was like I would have conversations with directors or producers and trying to figure out the notes that they wanted or the stories they wanted to tell and they would say, well, you know, we want to move this four frames that way or add this shot or that shot. I'm like, yeah, but why do you want to do that? And I would annoy them because sometimes they wouldn't understand. And I'm like, listen, this isn't about moving the, the cut four frames. It's about the effect that it has on the audience and why you think that's an important choice. So even when I was much younger learning the process of editing or learning the software or, for example, teaching at USC, I would always say, I don't care how to push buttons. I don't care what buttons to press. I care why I'm pressing each button and how that affects the story. So that's been a theme in my life for years and years and years without me really being able to articulate it. And then about three or four years ago, I was reading Tony Horton's book, and this is the beginning of the Tony Horton. So that, that, <laughs> that could be a podcast in and of itself, that whole through line. Um, but through a random- I love this. Through a random connection, um, when I had just started my first podcast, Fitness and Post, which was very geared just towards better health for film editors, and now Optimize Yourself as a much broader um, extension of that. Um, but just somebody said, oh, you know what? Yeah, I, I know Tony Horton's manager. I'd cut some video for her. I'm like, not July. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. So they hooked me up and I read his book and he talks about, like Tony says, my purpose is to help people find their purpose. And he talks about this thing called Why Stacks. So whenever there's something that you want to achieve, whether it is a four-frame edit or you want to lose weight or you want to tell good stories or you want to get more YouTube subscribers, whatever it is, well, why do I want to do that? Well, because it'll make me more money or I'll look better or whatever it is. Great. But why is that thing important? And you, as you start to peel the layer of the onion, you get to these much deeper emotional reasons why doing something is important. So for example... Um, when I look at the the current journey that I'm on, which is easily the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, training for American Ninja Warrior, I'm doing it more for the metaphor than anything. The teaching metaphor is the one of the bigger reasons why I'm doing it, but it forces me every day to learn more and more about these systems or these habits that I'm creating. So, all right, I want to be on American Ninja Warrior. Great. Well, what's so important about doing that? Well, gets me on TV and it gets exposure and I get to be a fancy celebrity, right? Okay, so that could be one reason why. All right, but why would that be important? Well, because it means that I could bring more exposure to the work that I've done with GoFar and with Christopher Rush and you know, working with people that have disabilities and helping people understand that we all have disabilities and we can all overcome them. Well, great, well, why is that important? Because doing that can force somebody to look inside themselves and say, you know what? 
maybe I need to push myself a little bit more outside my comfort zone. Because if I do that, then I realize there are capabilities inside I didn't see. And now I can actually reach a much greater potential because of that realization. So my deeper why is that I push myself outside of my comfort zone to inspire people to do the same for themselves so they can reach their fullest potential. The reason why that's so important is that when I go to Tony Horton's at 9 a.m. on Sunday and I get my ass kicked for four hours, <laughs> if the reason I want to be on American Ninja Warrior is because it would be cool and I get to look like a celebrity, I would quit. It is way too hard. Like there are so many things I have to cut out of my diet that I have to be careful with. There's so much time that I lose seeing my kids, seeing my family. There are choices I have to make about the types of jobs that I can take because I need the time to train that if it were about the what, I would quit. And that's the same with any difficult goal. If you don't understand the deeper emotional reason why it's so important, and more importantly, not only how it affects you, but how it affects other people, then you're going to quit. But if you have a why that is so solid, you have this foundation under your goal, that even though you might stumble, it's always a very, very clear goal and you're motivated to work towards it because there's a deeper emotional why. That's the big reason why I'm, I'm so focused on talking about that as opposed to just the superficial stuff. Yeah, I think two things. I love how, one, hearing you on your podcast and then actually meeting you in person in this podcast, but the intention behind what you're saying, you can feel that you're saying it and it will be true, that, that whole thing. And two, uh, you are putting pen to paper and you're physically showing people that you're practicing what you preach. And uh, that's, it's, it's really cool to see uh, once it will happen, then it just gives so much more gusto to what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and when it, like, for example, when it comes to, if somebody's trying to build a YouTube channel or trying to build an online business or a podcast or whatever mm-hmm. it is, it even applies to that. So if you're saying, man, God, how cool would it be to have a YouTube channel with 100,000 subscribers? I could totally live off of that. I could totally monetize that and live off of it, right? Yeah. So that's great, but why? Well, because if I didn't, that I'd, I'd have some more money. Okay, great. Why is having that money and that monetization and the income from the YouTube channel important? Well, it would mean that I would be more inspired by my work and I wouldn't have to have this nine to five that totally sucks editing you know, corporate car commercials or whatever the job might be, right? There are so many people that probably have some form of job where they're making an income, but they're dissatisfied and they're not inspired to do the work. So they say, I want to, you know, create the YouTube channel, for example. All right, great. Well, why, what, what is that money and that, uh, that income going to bring aside from you're not going to be working at this job anymore? Well, I guess if I'm not working at this horrible job anymore, I'm probably going to be a better husband because I'm not going to come home and be so exhausted. And, oh, that might actually make me a better dad too. So now all of a sudden, getting 100,000 YouTube subscribers and monetizing it so you can live off of it is not about making more money. It's about being a better father and a better husband. Now, when you have to deal with all the crap that comes with building a YouTube channel and consistently creating good content and hiccups and problems and realizing, oh, I'm not getting as many subscribers where I want or YouTube just changed their algorithm and now my monetization is cut in half. Most people say, well, this is just annoying. I'm not making the money that I want. I'm going to quit. You know why? You just keep working through all the obstacles and the challenges. Uh, well, speaking of quitting, can you talk about your view of failure? You put it a certain way, permission to fail, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the way that I look at failure is twofold. If we're talking about just total, complete, and utter failure, 
I believe that's really only possible if you quit. So whatever the, yeah. whatever the goal is, you can only consider complete and total failure if you give up, right? So I posted that on Facebook a couple of months ago and I got totally harassed and trolled because people are like, yeah, but failure is part of the process. I'm like, no, 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 you guys aren't getting it. I fail all day, every day, and I do it consistently and I embrace it because failure is part of the process. And the faster that I fail, the faster I learn and the faster I succeed. There's a big difference between failing on an individual, you know, like one action at a time or one lesson at a time versus complete and total failure. So going back to the Ninja Warrior analogy, this is one of the reasons I wanted to do it because it's so easy <laughs> as an analogy because um, it's like the perfect vision of like real obstacles versus metaphorical obstacles. Um, I fail every single day, whether it's, you know, trying to climb up a salmon ladder or, you know, do cliffhangers or rock climb. Like I fail all the time. But, excuse me, the only way that I have failed at becoming an American Ninja Warrior is if I just say, I can't do this. It's too hard. I quit. So I'm failing all the time, but I see failure as a learning experience. And even if you stumble, you're still moving forwards. Most people don't give themselves permission to fail. Therefore, they become perfectionists. So perfectionism to me is just an excuse for being too afraid to try something. So they're thinking, well, I really, really want to put out this video, but it's not ready yet, right? I'm just, I'm not ready to get it out there. And they may be thinking, well, I think that based on this content, this should get at least 50,000 views. All right, so then it gets 5,000 views. Well, you can either say, well, I can't do another video until it's perfect and I know I can get it. Or you can say, all right, so that sucked. So I totally expected that to get 50,000 views and it didn't. Let's figure out why. Let's learn from it, right? All right, so it didn't get it because, well, I can see that it didn't resonate with my audience the way that I thought it should. Or maybe the intro wasn't very good or could have used better music. All of these things you learn from embracing that failure and giving yourself the permission to fail is going to make you better and stronger at what you do as opposed to the perfectionism that holds so many people back. And they're thinking, well, this isn't ready to put out into the world yet, whether it is a piece of content or it's a goal, whatever it is, I'm just not quite ready yet. So one concept that um, I'm probably going to be writing about fairly, uh, uh, fairly, pretty close in the future, um, and this is not my concept, I'm stealing this from the, uh, the creator of the Spartan Race. It's this idea of everybody's looking at their life with the framework of ready, aim, fire. First, I have to get ready to do something. Then I'm going to aim and make sure it's perfect and I hit it exactly where it needs to go. And then I'm going to pull the trigger and I'm going to fire. And the Spartan philosophy, which is also the one I've adopted, is fire, aim, ready. Just shoot, just do it, right? You're definitely going to miss the target the first time because you haven't even aimed yet. But then you shoot and you're like, all right, well, let me understand why I missed. What is it about my approach that was wrong? Now I can start to aim after I've fired and get it closer. Now I'm ready to go. If you repeat that cycle and you embrace the fact that you just went out there, you fired the gun, you missed, you have to make sure that you learn all the strategies to get the better shot. Then you shoot again. The more you repeat that cycle, the faster you're going to be successful as long as you're willing to fail publicly and fail often. God, they're, they're like when you're saying that, there's so many different um, items that I'm thinking personally that when you're talking about that, that so many people can relate to. Like literally, 
uh, at the beginning of your story, I'm thinking about one thing and then at the other part, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's it. Reminds me of this other time with this other thing. And it just speaks to how well uh, you are as a speaker and just the, uh, I want to say the ideas and every, the theories that you have about just everything um, in terms of optimizing yourself. Uh, to that end, when you do your podcasts and you, when you're with your guests and everything, how uh, has there ever been a time when you've had a guest on and they've changed your views on something? Or when you set out to interview somebody, was it uh, you delved into their story and you're like, man, I'm really learning from whatever this was. Can you give me a reference or an example of something like that? Yeah, I mean, every single podcast interview is a different journey. So the way that I approach my podcast interviews is I don't prepare for them. And that really takes embracing the failure mindset to another level because you really have to be confident that you can just kind of get into it and go where it goes, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, especially when I interview people that have done a lot of interviews like New York Times bestselling authors and fitness experts, like they do these a lot. Mm -hmm. So they always say, can you please send me your list of questions beforehand so I can prepare? And I always respond to them and I say, unfortunately, I don't have a list of conver- I don't have a list of questions for you because I don't do interviews. I do conversations. <laughs> Your mindset on everything is so <laughs> I love how you just switch the wording and then that switches the mentality. That's so awesome. So when I say that to them, like, oh, okay, well, I sure I, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so what's what's important to me is that because I talk about a lot, lot of different things, I don't always have the same audience. So I'm always thinking to myself, who is it that's going to be listening to this episode, right? I have a general audience and I have a general like customer avatar, so to speak, but they're slightly different with variations as far as age or interests or their profession. So I say, who's listening to this interview? And when they are done with the interview, what takeaway do they get and how can they act on it? So I've listened to so many interviews where it's like, oh, that was cool. And it was like listening to people talk at the bar, but so what? But why? That did nothing <laughs> for my life other than take an hour away from it and entertain me. And there's nothing wrong with those, but I don't want entertainment. I want something that's going to inspire me to be done with it and say, man, I got to go to this website and look up this one product, or I need to try this thing at the next networking event or whatever it is. So I'm always thinking to myself, who am I talking to? And when they're done, what do I want them to be inspired to take away from it? And then when I go into my interview, I just talk. But I always have that takeaway in mind. So if I'm going off on a tangent, I'm thinking to myself, well, we haven't kind of gotten to that takeaway and I want to make sure my audience learns X, Y, or Z. And I know I can get that from this expert. But at the same time, I just let the conversation flow. So I may have in my mind like bullet points of based on their book or based on you know seeing them in this documentary or whatever it is about this guest, what do I want people to learn? Great. So they've learned this, but I can just take the story where I wanted to and let the, the interviewer speak. That's one of the things that drives me crazy with a lot of podcasters, even some of the really successful ones. You can tell the reading from questions. So somebody gets finished with a question or uh, the guest is finished answering the question. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, that was such an amazing story. But now I want to change the subject to something completely different that has nothing to do than that amazing story you just finished. And the audience is like, oh, but I wanted to know more. Like, mm-hmm. why, did you, why did you do this, this horrible transition? So I just want to have a conversation and I want to keep it within the general confines of the takeaway. But I still want that this is their time to share their stories. It's not my time to have them meet my agenda. 
So when I first started podcasting, I did do questions because I just wasn't confident in myself. And I listened to those and I cringe. I'm like, oh my God, these interviews just, they stink. There's no flow to them. And like what I'm told by most of the people that I interview when we're done is they're like, man, that just totally flew. I feel like we just started and I just got into the flow. And like, that was just one of the most relaxed podcasts I've ever done. I'm like, that's all by design. That's exactly why I do it that way because I want you to feel comfortable and usually you get into this flow where you get so much more good stuff that isn't just the talking points that that person would have had prepared otherwise. I think in doing this journey, just starting my podcast, what I really enjoy uh, is like you were saying earlier, uh, like just putting yourself out there and instead of um, aiming and uh, shooting, then just, I didn't really have an idea of like, oh, I know I want to go and I want to stress myself to like meet these new people. Now I'm like in the middle of LA and uh, like tomorrow I'll be like in Hollywood. And it was like, it was weird to say like in an email, like, oh, sorry, I have like a podcast like in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I, like to me, and the, taking a step back perspective wise, I was like, man, if you would have asked me like three months ago, if I was writing that sentence, I would have been like, who is this guy? But now, now uh, in terms of, I think I, I just brought this up on a podcast I just recorded um, cognizantly. It puts my brain in so many different other places to stretch myself to like learn and do other things and then accentuate the things that I'm already good at. Mm-hmm. So when I was listening to your podcast, what I loved about it is the people are talking. Whenever they're talking, there's never any, uh-huh. Yeah. Or what? in between there, you, they, they say their things and then it's done. Um, and then the other thing that I, I love about your podcast is when it, your time is to speak, you also provide value in whatever that segment is of your section. It's not like a co-host um, go, or a host going on the back end of what somebody already said and uh, doing something like that. Right, yeah. So uh, I'll give you two additional hacks for anybody that's listening This either does interviews or podcasts or whatever it is. The first of which is very deliberate. I mute my microphone while the other person is speaking. And I do that for two reasons. One of which we talked about a little bit beforehand. It's because when I'm podcasting, I am actually standing, I'm jumping on a trampoline, I'm swinging a kettlebell, I'm doing whatever I can to just stay really active and engaged. So I can even feel my energy is different because we're doing a seated podcast versus how I usually do it. Not to say that's a bad thing. This, that's not my style. But the reason that I also mute my microphone is that I don't have the, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, that's great. That's great. Because when you give somebody silence and they finish talking and you don't immediately respond, in general, they continue to go deeper into their story because people don't like silence. It's awkward. So if you don't respond to them immediately, they'll be like, yeah, so, and then that happened. And well, see, the crazy thing is that- It just happened with me, that's great. they (laughs) They start to dig in deeper and deeper and deeper. And I don't have to do anything, but it's because I'm letting them guide the conversation and I'm not interrupting them. So I specifically mute my microphone And if it's just dead silent for two or three seconds, whatever, I'll jump in and I'll respond, but I don't respond and speak on top of them immediately because I usually get really good nuggets because of that silence. But the other thing that I do that I think helps my audience so much, which you already alluded to, is that in general, I will always sum up what they just said. It's like, man, that story, like that's absolutely unbelievable. And I think what I took from that is that you learned X, Y, Z lessons. And I really think that my audience could learn from that as well. But now what I want to ask you is da, 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 right? So the the segue as opposed to, and I hear this on a lot of podcasts, especially the ones that I know have like hundreds of thousands of 
of listeners and it just makes me cringe. They'll be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, that was interesting. Okay, so now what I want to talk about, I'm like, you it's such a missed opportunity to really help the audience become more deeply engaged and understand what the takeaways are rather than just, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that was it. That was great. That's, that's awesome. All right, so now I want to talk about this. And the reason that I do those, those little summaries is because I, I know, like I said, I know the takeaway that I want my audience to have. I have no questions prepared. But if I'm very slowly summing up each and every little tidbit nugget, when it comes to the end, it's like, bam, now I can bring all those together. Even if it's not exactly what I thought would come from it, I'm always slowly directing the ship towards where I want it to go, even if it's going in different directions. So that's, that's a couple of additional interview Tid, tidbits. tidbits. Yes. Two things on that. Um, one, I think in order for that to be effective, you have to have life experiences. Like you have to, in, in your case, you're going out and you're pursuing things that challenge yourself. So you can relate to a lot of what people are talking about, which can really help. And what I was going to ask was, how long did it take you to get to that point? Because you said you had uh, questions at the beginning. When did you kind of go off and do your own thing and just be like, I want to approach this this way? And second thing, I think that's also plays in mind to your efficiency mm -hmm. in terms of how much time you're spending yes. preparing for sure. podcasts. So I can tell you definitively when it was, it was episode 18 of my first podcast. I can't wait. <laughs> the reason is, and you're going to see a thread here, episode 17 of my first podcast was with Tony Horton. <laughs> and, and, I'm just going to call this the not Tony Horton, right? but kind of Tony Horton. And guess what I did for my first interview with Tony Horton? I had a list of very immaculately prepared questions. And I went through that interview and it was very flat. And it was, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed to listen to it now, but I've gone back and I've listened to it since. And it just is so low energy. And the, there's, I just didn't have these effortless transitions. And it really felt like an interview and not a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's because I was so nervous. Like the thought of, and it was an in-person interview with him, which I rarely do, but he requested that I do in person. So I was in person sitting across from this guy that has been a mentor and a hero of mine for years. And I was nervous out of my mind. And I just, I have to be uber prepared. I have to be ready for it. And I just felt sick afterwards. Thinking, God, that interview just sucked. Like it could have been so much better. Why did it go that way? And I thought, you know what? It's because I was over prepared. I'd read his book and I'd taken notes and I had pages and pages of notes and like 20 questions in the specific order that I wanted to run them through. And he just talks, he just goes, man. And that's when I learned, you know what? I have to take a different approach to this because number one, speaking to the efficiency part, I spent days preparing for a one hour interview. And when I first started podcasting, probably the first five or six months, it consumed my entire life. It was at least 20 hours or more a week for one episode. And I believe in consistency. I believe that if I'm going to have something that releases, whether, you know, whatever kind of content, whether it's writing or whatever, I want to do it consistently. I don't want to be somebody that has this great podcast three times every four months. I want them to know when they wake up on Thursday morning in their podcast player, they have new content for me. It just becomes this habitual thing. And I couldn't meet that. And I thought, why are my interviews not really flowing? And why is this so hard? Oh, it's because I'm spending so much time preparing. So how can I make them better with less time? And that's when it kind of dawned on me that I just need to jump in the deep end of the pool and just talk to them. And I need to, I need to know who I'm talking to. I, fire, aim, shoot. Yeah, like <laughs> fire, aim, ready, right? Oh, sorry. So, it, and it, it took some time to do that. But once I embraced that, the learning curve grew very, very quickly. 
because I was fully committed to doing it that way. I just had to learn how. And then I realized I have to build a lot more efficiencies into my workflow. So I don't spend all this time not only preparing, but doing the work afterwards. So I've gotten myself to the point now where whatever any given episode is of the podcast, it probably takes me between 90 minutes and two hours total. So that includes the one hour interview. Jesus. So it's amazing. If I mean, if we're talking about preparation, like if I have a, a New York Times bestselling author, I'm going to read their book. But in all honesty, I usually use Audible and I listen to stuff because um, I find that it takes me longer to read stuff. And I won't go into it too much, but I talked about my history of like adult onset ADD and actually have a fairly difficult time sitting down and reading, but I'm really good at listening. So I'll either listen to something in the car or I'll take walks. And these are things I would be doing anyway. I'm always going to be in the car commuting and I'm always going to take morning and afternoon walks. So I use that to learn. So to me, that's not really preparation time. So that means that I'll have, like, I'll, I'll go out, I'll listen to an audible book and like, oh, that's a good takeaway. So I just create this, uh, this note that I'll have in Evernote that has just all these random bullet points. So I know the general takeaway. I have a bunch of random tidbits that I pulled from listening to it. And I have an automatic scheduler. So if I say, I want this person to be on the podcast, I send them a link and say, choose whatever time works in your scheduler, in my scheduler, and just pick the best time so that we don't have to email back and forth nine times. So they click on it. I have an automated zap that's created between my scheduler and Zapier and Trello. So a Trello card automatically pops up on the board with a time. It shows up on my calendar. So I just wake up. I'm like, oh, look at that. I've got a podcast with Jim today, right? So I jump on the podcast. I have this note. Here are all the bullet points that, oh yeah, I remember reading that a month ago. Yeah, sure. That's a good, that's a good takeaway. All right. So I just talked to the guy for an hour. I drop that file into a folder. That folder is attached to a Trello card. The Trello card has 97 check, check marks on it that is subdivided by my crew. And just it's this automated system that starts to take off. And from the point that I record it to the point that it airs, and there are show notes that are written and attached for it, all I've had to do is look at the finished show notes, make sure that the links work, and I click the approve button. So for any given podcast episode, it's about 90 minutes total between the hour of recording and the half hour of approval afterwards. Now, but obviously not by myself. I have an editor. That's what I, I was going to say I have too. somebody that yeah. publishes. So yeah. I, but I specifically said I can make two choices. I can either, again, this is the choice of being perfect or being good enough. I don't have a lot of experience doing specifically audio editing, but granted, I have enough experience editing that, you know, I could, I could very clearly cut the podcast myself. But I know that to do that would take away so much time and energy from other things that I could do with my business instead. So I have a podcast editor. And I also know that once I came up with a formula for writing my show notes and I found a voice and I knew this is my template every week, well, that's stupid for me to keep doing that by myself. If I can delegate that to somebody and those two hours are now mine to continue doing things that only I can do in my business, that helps me grow rather than to just constantly feel like I'm feeding the hamster wheel. So I had to do all of it at first. As soon as I figured out this is how I can teach somebody else to do it the way that I prefer, I hand it to them. So that's why I don't do anything with a podcast other than record the interview and double check and make sure that everything looks good when it goes live. But that's it. My head is is mind blown emoji right now, especially from editing. Well, I guess with the Chai podcast, I was the one on the back end editing it. Uh, but just the fact in the the ballsy maneuver of... I, what I was going to ask is, so 
and I'm glad you brought it up, the the book thing. It's like, well, if they are an authority or somebody that knows a lot about some subject, obviously you have to know something about like, all right, if they wrote a book, if they were in a movie and then you said like, oh, I watched this documentary, I did this thing. So um, I think that's like listening to your podcast going through, that's like just writing, jotting down the little concepts that I, that I like latched onto. Um, that's what I like. Uh, one of the things that I always like to ask everybody at the end of the podcast is if, somebody was to pursue and get to the point like where you're at right now, either in video editing, pursuing podcasts and things of that nature, what would you tell them uh, to like, if they say they were just graduating or something like that, what would you tell them to set them up for success? Um, I don't know if I could tell them just one thing. It's funny because being an editor, brevity is not one of my strong suits. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I would say the, one of the things that we've already talked about at length that I won't go uh, too much more into, you need to understand why doing this thing is important to you. But I think the other part of that and the reason why, the why is so important is you need to be willing to embrace the process. So what I mean by that is, and I've fallen prey to this as well, when somebody comes out of school, for example, if they say they want to be a famous film editor, right? They'll look at somebody like Billy Goldenberg or Pietro Scalia or Michael Kahn and say, oh my God, this is so what I want to be someday. I want to win an Oscar for editing an Oscar-winning drama, right? Well, great. Do you know what that actually looks like every single day for the next 30 years of your life. And if you do know what that looks like, are you willing to embrace the process? Because if all you want is the reward and the result, you're most likely never going to survive. So as an editor, if you live to be inside of a dark room for 12 to 16 hours a day and edit in a timeline and play with little colored blocks to make people feel something, you can make it. But if you don't like being in dark rooms and you can't stand not having a window and you really like to be active all day long, but it sure would be cool to win an Oscar for film editing, good luck. It's not going to happen. You have to be willing to embrace the process and understand this is what my life is going to look like for X amount of time to reach the goal. Am I willing to allow my life to look like this for that period of time? So that's always the first question that I ask when I'm looking at any large goal. Again, going back to Ninja Warrior, it's like, Sure would be cool to be on American Ninja Warrior and have millions of people hear about my documentary and inspire them. What is that actually going to look like every day of my life for the next one to two years? All right. Am I willing to live that way? And then I'm like, yep, I'm willing to do it. So I took off. But there, if I'm not willing to embrace the process, I'm never going to get the results. That makes me think about everybody that is behind Ninja Warrior. Like every single contestant, if everyone has just as like an interesting story as yours and how much all of those people are putting into it. Ah, it's so good. It's so crazy. Um, Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Yeah, so the best place is just go to optimizeyourself.me. The mistake that a lot of people make, which is partly my fault, is they think, oh yeah, it's optimize me. It's like, nope, optimizeyourself.me. Um, the other place that they can go as well that might be super helpful for them is I created this gigantic 50-page ultimate guide that is the ultimate guide to optimizing your creativity. So it talks about all these different areas, whether it's more movement throughout the day, how you can maximize the types of foods you eat to generate more creativity and eliminate brain fog and lethargy. And it's not about calories. It's not about weight loss. It's specifically about cognitive function. It talks about how to get better sleep. It talks about all kinds of different apps and hacks that I use to manage my calendar, manage my time, be more productive. All of it packed in this 50-page PDF, which is totally free. And they can go to optimizeyourself.me slash ultimate guide to download that. 
Well, thank you so much, Zach. This has been such a learning experience and I'm so glad I got to have this conversation. Awesome. You can find me at Javier Mercedes X on all the social things and Passion in Progress. Please leave a review. It helps the podcast and all that, all those things. It's on Spotify and all the, the whole spiel at the end for it's in all the places where all podcasts are online. Thank you so much. And I will see you guys on the next one. Bye.